Hello, and welcome to the audio version of the Platinum Trust Quarterly Report for September 2023. The disclaimers are available on our website at platinum.com.au under terms and conditions. My name's Dean McClelland, and I'm going to take you through what I think are some of the highlights of the report. As always, I'll start by covering our flagship international fund and our Asia X Japan fund, then move through our long-only regional and sector funds. I'll also be providing the insights on our Platinum Global Transition Fund, quoted managed hedge fund, which appears in a separate document but is of interest to many of our listeners. In this recording and going forward, the macro overview will not be included, so I encourage you to head to Platinum's journal page where you can find a quick 16-minute audio recording of Platinum CEO and co-CIO Andrew Clifford sitting down with investment analyst Julian McCormack to further discuss global markets. Now let's begin with the International Fund. The main factor driving markets over the quarter was changing expectations for interest rates globally. While we believe the tightening cycle is either at or near its end, significant interest rate cuts seem unlikely, especially in the US where the economy remains robust on the back of ongoing fiscal stimulus. In China, the drag of a weak property sector remains the key concern, and although the government continues to implement policy measures to boost the economy and the property market, stock markets, for now, remain unconvinced. Now, across the globe, commentators continue to debate a series of big questions. How many interest rate rises are left, if any? Will inflation recede or will tight labour markets keep pushing up prices? And will the USA and Europe escape recession and enjoy a soft landing? Meanwhile, global stock markets have rallied strongly from the lows of 2022 and remain not far from the all-time speculative highs of the pandemic bull market. Partly, this strength can be attributed to the excitement around the possibilities of artificial intelligence, or AI. This has seen a disproportionate percentage of market returns being derived from a small number of very large companies, the so-called Magnificent Seven of Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, NVIDIA, Tesla and Facebook. It is tempting for investors to be drawn into this debate, but to do so is to focus one's attention in the same place as everyone else, when investment opportunities are more likely to appear in areas out of the spotlight. What the above discussion misses is that there are many companies that have already experienced significant business setbacks and endured bear markets in their stock prices. As a stock picker, we ask, why debate the possibility of a global economic recession when we can look at companies that have suffered their own recession and may now be attractively valued? One example are those businesses directly and immediately affected by higher interest rates. Those higher rates provided us with interesting opportunities in European businesses we label asset gatherers. All Funds, an investment fund platform, and St James's Place, UK Wealth Management, were hit by a common problem, falling asset prices. Each of these businesses earn revenue based on assets under management or administration, and so were affected by falling bond and equity prices over 2022. Both companies have strong positions in their respective markets, and we expect all funds and St James's Place to continue to grow strongly once they're beyond this short-term earning setback. Share price falls of 50% or more from the highs of 2021 gave the fund an opportunity to add to our holdings at very attractive prices. The Japanese market has been the strongest major global market in 2023, rising nearly 17% year-to-date. A significant part of the Japan story is the corporate governance reform over the last decade that is resulting in Japanese companies placing greater focus on shareholder interests. 
Over the past year, the fund added to a position in Toyo Seikan Group. Toyo Seikan has a strong position in aluminium and steel cans for food and beverages, along with a range of other packaging-related businesses. The industry has consolidated in Japan and now, like most major markets, has two major players. However, unlike its global peers, returns on capital have been poor as the company held excess holdings of cash, securities and real estate. At the time of our original purchase, the entire market value of the company was accounted for by cash balances and investments. In May this year, the company announced they would be focusing on profitability and streamlining investments in securities and real estate. Additionally, over the next five years, 100 billion yen would be spent on stock buybacks. That's 30% of the company at, the point, at that point in time. And a further 80 billion yen would be distributed in dividends. While the stock has rallied over 70% since our initial purchase, it remains at 0.7 times book value, with the potential for additional distributions of capital and, most importantly, much improved profitability. In China, distress in the property development sector and its impact on the economy has been front-page news in the financial papers. The story that is not being told, though, is how many sectors of the economy are doing well. Auto sales are running at levels around the peak of five years ago. Indeed, China has this year surpassed Japan as the global leader in auto exports, driven by a leadership position in electric vehicles. Domestic travel is strong, with air passengers Passenger numbers in July at levels 13% above pre-COVID levels and with airfares 15 to 20% higher. By the second quarter, Chinese e-commerce deliveries were up 20% from a year ago. In short, while the Chinese consumer may not be buying properties, they are certainly spending their money elsewhere. The fears around China mean many Chinese companies are trading at depressed levels. Consider the funds holding in ZTO Express. The company is the leading express delivery service in China and in the past five years has increased deliveries from 6 billion parcels a year to an expected 30 billion in 2023. To put that number in context, in the US, FedEx and UPS combined deliver a mere 12 billion. ZTO continues to take market share and in our view could grow parcel deliveries by 24% this year. Additionally, severe price competition in the market is receding. In our view, the company could grow its operating profit by 50% this year. Today, the stock trades on 15 times our estimates of earnings for this year, and we expect the company can grow earnings at around the 20% per annum mark for some years, thanks to industry growth and market share gains. By any standard, this is an extraordinary valuation for such a high-quality growth stock. Again, for context, consider the following. ZTO's market capitalization is US $20 billion dollars. For FedEx and UPS combined, it's over US $200 billion. On AI and a note of caution, the recent rally in AI stocks has driven greater risk-taking by investors in many of the growth stocks that drove the speculative bubble of 2021. Some favoured software companies again trade at valuations of 15 to 20, 20 times sales and some companies with dubious business models are again attracting multi-billion dollar valuations. This gave us the opportunity to put in place short positions against companies whose long-term valuations, we believe, will be pressured by higher interest rates. In terms of the outlook, we continue to see significant divergences in stock prices and valuations across different sectors and geographies. These represent both threat and opportunity for investors. 
the broad global stock market indices have been pushed higher this year by growth stocks that again have reached high valuations. In this context, the market looks vulnerable to a setback, as it did in late 2021, especially when one considers that long-term interest rates have hit new highs in recent weeks. Outside of these highly favoured names, there are many companies that have experienced significant setbacks in both their businesses and stock prices, and thus represent good buying opportunities. We expect the fund's strategy of avoiding or shorting expensive growth stocks and focusing on better priced opportunities elsewhere will contribute to returns in the medium term. Moving on to the Platinum Asia Fund. We have been slowly and steadily increasing our exposure to the Indonesian consumer over the past year or so and added two new holdings this quarter. Indonesia is the fourth most populous country in the world. GDP per capita has more than doubled over the past 15 years. Infrastructure has been improving and the country's natural resources have been leveraged to develop domestic downstream industries. These factors, coupled with the recent changes to labour laws, are likely to boost employment. Despite this positive backdrop, COVID did take a toll on the economy, with private consumption falling from 57% to 52% of GDP, and so consumer spending has been weaker than you might expect. This temporary headwind, coupled with the inevitable uncertainties that come with an upcoming election, has created an opportunity to find attractive investments exposed to this consumer theme. One of our new holdings, Pakuwon Jati, is a high-quality retail mall operator with their core assets located in Jakarta and Surabaya. They are also expanding their footprint across the country, with recent acquisitions establishing them in central Java and Bali, while a new development project is giving them a toehold in Batam, a popular destination for Singaporean tourists. Along with their malls, Pakuwonjati typically develops adjacent apartments, hotels and office space. While their mall and hotel operations are healthy and profitable, having rebounded from the COVID-induced dip of the past couple of years, residential apartment sales across the country have been weak and office space is seeing headwinds from the rise of hybrid work. This means we've been able to, to secure a position in this attractive asset at a remarkably reasonable valuation of 11 times what is a stable and growing high-quality earnings stream, largely underpinned by their mall rental portfolio. As the Indonesian consumer gets wealthier, the rents these malls can charge should correspondingly increase. There will likely be opportunities to optimise and improve upon these assets in a capital-efficient manner. The other company recently added to the portfolio that ties into this consumer theme is a domestic cinema chain operator, Nusantara Sejatera Raya. This company is an anchor tenant in Pakuwon Jati's malls. Given the still nascent state of economic development across Indonesia, cinema attendance and ticket prices remain well below levels seen across more developed economies. The business has grown at a steady clip for many years as Indonesian consumers have grown wealthier. The cinema industry in Indonesia has some interesting quirks relative to other markets. Viewing windows are short and attendance is consequently high, leading to good asset utilisation. This, coupled with low ticket prices, supports the potential for supplemental income from food and drink sales. One of the biggest impediments to the rollout of cinema chains across the country is the availability of high-quality retail space. In short, the country needs more malls, and as those malls get built, cinema chains will be rolled out, giving more of the population greater access to this form of entertainment. The company is the clear industry leader known for their high quality cinema experience.
Elsewhere across the portfolio, we added to our holding in Chinese e-commerce company JD.com. Having been a beneficiary of strong electronic sales during COVID, they're now facing the subsequent uh, come down and short-term sales momentum has stalled. We believe that the market is being short-sighted in selling the company off on this issue. In India, we reduced our position in property developer Macrotech. This has been a very successful investment since our initial purchase a couple of years ago. The business has performed well and we continue to like the management team, but we feel the shares are increasingly fully valued, hence have reduced our position. We have been talking about the relatively full valuations ascribed to Indian stocks for a while. We even initiated a short position on the market when a high-profile corporate governance scandal made headlines around the world. We felt that episode would remind people of the risks inherent in this market. As it turns out, investors brush those scandals aside and continue to pay up for, the, for Indian assets. As such, we have largely closed our short position. In terms of the outlook, China remains a meaningful exposure for us, and it is a much debated market. Sections of that economy have clearly been going through a tough adjustment phase. Counterbalancing that, there has been remarkable strength in certain segments, including autos, where booming sales are turning China into a global car manufacturing powerhouse. Meanwhile, the challenging property market grinds away in the background, and there has been a steady series of tweaks to policies and incentives aimed at stabilising and improving the situation in that industry. For example, there were recent changes to down payments and leverage requirements for the first and second homes, as well as interest rate policy adjustments. At some point, these combined initiatives will have their desired effect. It is also important to remember we invest in specific Chinese assets, not the Chinese economy. With our portfolio positioned as it is, we feel confident investors will be rewarded for their patience. While it has been a dry spell for Asian investors lately, it is hard to ignore the value on offer. Even looking beyond the two big markets of India and China, we believe assets are generally priced such that little needs to go right for investors to make quite healthy returns over the medium term. We've continued to find plenty of opportunities. And this quarter, we've, we discussed some of our new holdings in Indonesia. South Korea is another market with attractively priced assets and a compelling record of improving investor protections. Similar stories abound across the region. In our view, the outlook for Asia-focused investors is an attractive one. Moving on to the Platinum Global Fund Long Only, where portfolio manager Clay Smolinski takes us through a new position in the fund. During the quarter, we built a substantial position in Swiss wealth management and banking player UBS. The investment is very much a special situation arising from the UBS acquisition of Credit Suisse. A factor in any good investment is the price you pay and in the case of Credit Suisse, UBS was able to acquire nearly 54 billion Swiss francs of net assets for less than 3.4 billion Swiss francs. Given UBS's book value was 52 billion Swiss francs prior to the deal, this is a very meaningful acquisition. And in our view, the 16-fold difference between the price paid and assets received firmly tilts the odds of a positive outcome in UBS's favour. Now, it's a tale of two Swiss banks. The two businesses are very similar in structure. They own the number one and number two retail banks in Switzerland, and they are the number one and number two global wealth managers outside of the US. They both have sizable asset management businesses, and they are both global investment banking players. UBS ran into trouble during the financial crisis of 2008-2009, 
and substantially de-risked its investment bank, whereas Credit Suisse emerged from that period relatively unscathed and did not de-risk to nearly the extent that UBS did. Following a series of poor business decisions, including significant losses from the Green Sill and Archegos, Credit Suisse was in the midst of executing a restructuring program to de-risk the investment bank. Credit Suisse faced the classic project management dilemma. You often have to choose to focus on only two of cost, quality, and speed of delivery. After digesting the losses from its investment banking misadventures, Credit Suisse didn't have enough excess capital to execute the de-risking as fast as it needed. Confidence in the bank was shaken and customers were already withdrawing funds from Credit Suisse when the shock bankruptcy of Silicon Valley Bank in the USA triggered a bank run that led to the Swiss Central Bank brokering a deal for UBS to acquire Credit Suisse for just cents on the dollar. In normal times, the merger between the number one and number two retail banks would not have been approved on competition grounds. The upside for UBS investors is that the cost savings from merging two banks that are operating in the same business lines and headquartered in the same city may be very material. About $16 billion of Credit Suisse's AT1 debt was converted to equity as part of the acquisition deal, leaving the consolidated bank in a much stronger capital position. We expect this capital buffer will allow UBS to restructure the combined bank much quicker than Credit Suisse could have. UBS has also taken on a number of asset write-downs and provisions, and some of these are likely to be reversed if things go smoothly from here, further bolstering earnings. Looking ahead, we expect the fund will be holding a bank with significantly higher earning power and enough excess capital to buy back a material number of shares. Moving now to the Platinum European Fund. Banks and energy were amongst our best performing investments this quarter. Rising interest rates allowed banks to expand their interest margins by revising the interest rate they charge on loans ahead of the interest rate they pay on deposits. This margin expansion more than made up for the drag from rising labour costs and weakening loan demand. European banking regulators have also become more amenable to share buybacks, which helped our holdings performance. Europe is currently working to re-engineer its energy supply chain. Where it has historically relied heavily on piped Russian oil and gas, the region is now investing heavily in infrastructure to allow them to import seaborne cargoes from a wide range of suppliers. This will improve energy security medium term, but leaves the region vulnerable to near-term supply disruptions. The recent threat of strikes at Australian LNG facilities reminded the market of this vulnerability and kick-started a rally in European gas prices. Russia also moved to curb exports of refined products, which pushed refining margins higher. In commentary, in Europe, investor concerns centre on the current aggressive monetary tightening cycle, a deteriorating economic outlook, a weaker than anticipated recovery in China, and energy supply vulnerability. The European Central Bank has hiked the policy rate by 4.5 percentage points over the past 18 months. Monetary policy tends to affect the real economy with a significant lag, and we are now at that point where the brakes are starting to grip. Leading economic indicators rolled over around the middle of this year and are now in contractionary territory. Moreover, while central banks are signalling a desire to pause and assess the impact of their actions to date, there seems little appetite to cut rates. This reluctance to cut is reinforced 
by a rebound in energy prices, which risk spilling over into core inflation. Given the likely tightening of business conditions, we are avoiding segments of the market where conditions appear favourable and where monetary tightening has yet to have meaningful impact. Instead, we are focusing our research efforts on those industries where demand tends to respond quickly to monetary tightening, where a downturn is already well underway and where stock prices reflect this. One such segment is what we call asset gatherers. We touched on that briefly in the Platinum International Fund summary. These are businesses that earn fees based on the value of assets that they advise on, manage or administer. They include companies such as All Funds, St James's Place and UBS. All three are now large holdings in the fund. Whereas monetary policy affects the economy with a significant lag, it affects asset prices almost immediately. Bond markets had a horrific 2022 and there has been no relief in 2023. Equities also had a nasty 2022 before rebounding this year. These asset price falls reduce the value of client portfolios and hence the fees earned by our asset gatherers. Moving over to the outlook, we are keeping a weather eye on political risks brewing below the surface. Experience suggests financial markets will not tolerate this well. None of the political risks are a cause for concern in and of itself. What is concerning is that this uncertain economic and political backdrop is not all that congruent with European equity markets trading just shy of their all-time highs. Our response to this situation is to avoid quality businesses that are potentially overvalued. We also tend to be more cautious towards cyclical businesses where there is little evidence of a slowdown yet, such as banks and travel-related businesses. We have been trimming these stocks. On the other hand, we are looking to build positions in companies that were among the first to feel the squeeze from monetary tightening where expectations have already been reset and where share prices are more attractive. This has led us to build our positions in asset gatherers, as discussed. We are also investing in energy-related businesses that will play an important role in transitioning Europe away from Russian-supplied oil and gas. This is a trend we believe will continue to play out, regardless of the economic outlook. Moving to the Platinum Japan Fund. The move up in the market was underpinned by strength in the banking sector. The Bank of Japan's decision to allow the 10-year bond yield to rise while keeping the short-term policy rate negative implies improving net interest margins for banks, thus leading to an increase in the market's profits expectations. The weakening yen could push the BOJ, Bank of Japan, to relax yield curve control further, which is also contributing to optimism around the banks. The Japanese automobile sector received a boost from the lower yen as it lifts the value of offshore earnings and improves the competitiveness of their Japanese labour force. A lack of exposure to these two key areas of the market strength, banks and autos, hurt the fund's relative performance in the quarter, unfortunately. During the quarter, we added to our positions in confectionery maker Izaki Glyco, which recorded an 8% rise over the quarter, and road safety equipment manufacturer Sekisui Jushi, which was up nearly 5% over the same period. While the broader market was sceptical, we bought Glyco on the expectation that margins would improve toward historical levels, following the company's efforts to pass through input cost increases to customers. The company was also very cheap, trading at one times price to book, with around half of its market capitalisation held in cash, securities and non-core real estate. Higher pricing is now being passed on and the stock is responding. Jushi executed a large share buyback during the quarter, repurchasing the roughly 20% stake 
owned by its parent, Sekisui Chemical. Jushi held around half of its market capitalization in cash and was trading for less than book value. The key issues for Japanese markets are expectations around the path of interest rates in both Japan and the US, the global economic cycle, particularly as it affects the semiconductor industry, and the progress of ongoing reforms to Japanese corporate governance. The first issue, interest rates, creates the most uncertainty in the environment, but has the least relevance to the long-term performance of the companies we invest in. The second, the economic cycle, is important in relation to position sizing and our ability to find optimal entry points into businesses that, in our view, have fantastic long-term potential. We hold several companies that participate in the semiconductor supply chain, but have reduced our exposure to this sector as stocks have run ahead of a turn in the cycle due to buoyant sentiment around generative artificial intelligence. The final issue is Japanese corporate governance. This is where we have the most confidence of progress independent of the vagaries of the global macro economy. We are positioned to benefit from this theme with around half of the fund exposed to companies with overcapitalized balance sheets and governance that is either improving or likely to improve in the near term. Toya Seikan, Natetsu Mining, Azaki Glyco and Sekisua Jushi all fit into this category. In terms of outlook, the fundamental story for Japanese equities remains strong. While stocks have re-rated this year as global investors returned to the market, they remain very cheap on some key measures relative to other developed markets. More than half of the listed equities in Japan trade for less than the value of their book equity, compared with a small fraction in the US. Ongoing governance reforms are spreading more widely and amassing greater momentum in areas where they have already seen some headway. Japan has long been a market where underperforming management could hoard shareholders' assets, comfortable in the knowledge that they would not be subject to a hostile takeover. Two recent precedents now very much challenge that assumption, putting more pressure on managements to reform in line with the government's aims. Additionally, investors may begin to recognise the increased probability of such M&A activity and push up the price of potential targets in anticipation. This may create an embedded premium for potential takeover targets, as exists in Western markets. While concerns around the health of the global economy, geopolitical tensions and the path of interest rates and currencies may continue to dominate the headlines and day-to-day -day swings in stock prices, we view the deep idiosyncratic and fundamental changes discussed as the key drivers of returns for investors in Japanese stocks over the medium term. Now, over to the Platinum International Brands Fund. Western market consumption has remained surprisingly resilient given the rapid rise in interest rates and the removal of pandemic-era stimulus. Clearly, there has been support from low unemployment and solid nominal wage growth, but one would expect higher rates to bite at some point, particularly in markets such as Australia and the UK, where mortgages are progressively resetting to much higher floating rates. In the US, we are seeing an interesting divergence. Retailers most exposed to lower-income consumers are struggling, while the higher-end consumer remains reasonably resilient. However, even luxury bellwethers such as LVMH have been pressured by weakening Chinese consumption and a pullback in the US from the pandemic spending boom. Several analyses point to the prospect of weakening US consumption as consumers run down their pandemic-era excess savings. Dipping into the pandemic nest egg may have been supporting consumer lifestyles, but this dynamic appears to be nearing its end. 
We have sought to avoid or to sell short otherwise mature businesses that enjoyed dramatic sales and margin expansion during the pandemic and where reversion to more normal levels is yet to fully occur. Similarly, we hold short positions in a number of structurally challenged businesses and also meme stocks where unjustifiable valuations continue to unwind. The stocks we are long tend to offer structural growth at reasonable valuations, such as funeral services business Hushouan and low-cost gym operator Basic Fit. Or they are deep value companies trading at exceptionally low prices that are either improving their capital allocation or have the potential to do so, such as Azaki Glyco that we spoke about for the Platinum Japan Fund and infant formula business China Fehi. We have a dim view of the outlook for consumer spending globally. And this is reflected in our conservative positioning, with the fund only around 55% net exposed to markets, at the low end of our historical exposure range. Outside of Asia, inflation is showing signs of persistence, implying interest rates stay higher for longer, which likely leads to an economic slowdown and rising unemployment. In our view, instability in the commercial property sector and amongst heavily indebted private equity portfolio companies could spill over into the broader economy. We expect a continued reversion to mean levels of inflation-adjusted sales and operating margins for key US discretionary retailers that were beneficiaries of pandemic-era spending. The valuations of many stocks we own are now considerably more attractive than they were even a few months ago, and we continue to examine opportunities to buy excellent businesses at reasonable prices. We continue to see the most opportunity in Chinese stocks where spending has been restrained and could recover rather than Western markets where consumers overspent and are now showing signs of retreating. As always, our holdings are a result of the bottom-up assessment of the opportunity set, with each stock possessing its own idiosyncratic characteristics that should provide an opportunity for outperformance separate to the path of consumption trends globally. Moving now to the recently renamed Platinum International Health Sciences Fund and the commentary by Dr. Bianca Ogden. This quarter, three themes dominated healthcare. The higher for longer interest rates theme pressured the biotech sector. Trends in obesity therapeutics forced a rethink on valuations of medical device companies. And life science tool companies remain in a holding pattern given continued inventory adjustments at customers and lower demand in China. The cell and gene therapy sector remains challenged. This year's Nobel Prize for Medicine will be awarded to professors Catalin Carico and Drew Weissman, the two scientists that worked out that by modifying a building block of the mRNA, the molecule is able to fly under the radar of the body's immune response. This was a fundamental discovery that paved the way for mRNA to be used as a vaccine and as a therapeutic. To say theirs was a challenging road is an understatement. To get from a hypothesis to a commercial product, a lot of pieces, money and luck have to coalesce. It is a bumpy journey and currently many investors are shunning the biotech sector altogether. However, biotechs are, are the ones that will give us new and better medicines in the future. A bumpy road is part of it and just giving up because the wind changes is not an option. Take BioNTech, a company that is working on non-COVID uses for mRNA. In 2016, we got interested in mRNA as a therapeutic after reading a Nature paper from BioNTech highlighting the use of mRNA as immune therapy in cancer. The same year, Genentech and BioNTech entered an alliance to develop cancer vaccines. We invested in BioNTech's pre-IPO. We also invested at Moderna at the IPO stage. 
as their plan to develop multiple modalities to treat cancer appealed to us, so did the team running the company, including Catalan Carico. The pandemic changed our investment case temporarily as we, and we did exit our investments due to valuation. Today, BioNTech is back in the portfolio. COVID sales are not our main thesis. We are intrigued by the pipeline, particularly the alliance with private biotech firm Onco C4, providing access to next generation CTLA4 antibody, ONC392. Moving to the outlook, the investment environment for biotech and tool companies is yet again dancing to the tune of broader macroeconomic themes. This theme, plus tax loss selling, is distracting from the fundamentals of the investment case. In our view, we are again close to historically low valuations in the segment we favour, and it is crucial we focus on the long term and use this opportunity to take advantage of the sell-down. The financial updates from life science tool companies in the coming weeks will be closely watched for any indication about in-market recovery, while medical device companies will have to continue to explain how they see the, their business fair in times of obesity therapeutics. In the coming weeks, Novo Nordisk will also present the cardiovascular outcome data where Novo Nordisk's GLP-1 agonist was tested against placebo. The trial was successful, but details will help understand the ramifications for the wider healthcare system. As is the custom in biotech and pharma, we continue to expect further consolidation in the sector. Moving over to the Platinum International Technology Fund, where portfolio manager Jimmy Sue explains that there are three key drivers that explain the difference between the fund's performance and the benchmark. One, Microsoft, Apple and NVIDIA make up 50% of the benchmark weighting, whereas the fund's exposure to mega cap tech is generally below 20%. It's currently 15%. Number two, the fund generally seeks to be 80 to 90% net invested. This means that in strong and narrow markets, for example, the first half of 2023, the fund's performance can be expected to lag, though the inverse can apply when markets are weak, for example, the first half of 2022. And third and finally, USD holdings, US dollar holdings make up 40% of the fund, and this is significantly lower than the benchmark at 89%. As such, the fund will typically underperform when the US dollar appreciates versus other currencies, such as the euro and the yen, at a faster rate versus the AUD. The converse is true when the US dollar depreciates. The fund initiated a position in Japan's Kiants. We expect strong demand for their automated inspection equipment and machine vision solutions. This will be driven by a number of factors. Increased investment in the global electronic vehicle or EV value chain, semiconductor manufacturing, the reshoring of manufacturing, structural adoption of robotics, and investment in manufacturing automation. In our view, Kiants will maintain its position as the global leader given its innovation in image processing software. It also has a strong director distribution and sales network. Moving over to commentary. In our framework for investing in generative AI, or Gen AI, we look for two things. One, we look for companies where Gen AI will likely be a sustaining innovation in the short to medium term, one that creates a new avenue for profitable revenue growth and strengthens the company's competitive position. And two, we also seek companies that trade at a valuation which provides us with an asymmetric payoff. One where we realise decent returns for investors if we are correct in our assessment, but limit the downside in the event we are wrong. One example is Adobe, 
where the fund took a 2.5% position in the last quarter. The Creative Cloud business is roughly 65% of Adobe's revenue. The software is used by creative professionals for graphic design, video editing, animation and photography. Whilst the creative software market is flooded with cheap point solutions, Adobe remains dominant. Competitors struggle to replicate Adobe's broad suite of apps and tools developed over more than 30 years. They also have to contend with the interoperability of the Adobe ecosystem, which means users can access projects on multiple apps with minimal friction. Adobe also benefits from the network effect of being a de facto industry standard. The strength of the business is reflected in the fact that industry participants we have spoken to believe Creative Cloud likely makes roughly 45% EBIT margins and contributes to roughly 90% or more of Adobe's EBIT itself. Adobe has historically traded on 40 to 60 times uh, gap PE over the last decade, a reflection of the business's high quality. In the first half of 2023, Adobe launched Firefly in beta testing. Firefly is a Gen AI product directly embedded within its apps, which gives users the ability to quickly generate and edit images using text prompts. From our conversation with creative professionals, Firefly could significantly increase productivity, replace boring and tedious parts of the workflow, and save costs as a stock library replacement. If the technology proves to be successful, Firefly is likely to be widely adopted by the creative industry, as not doing so will put one at a productivity disadvantage versus their competitors. We're also not too concerned about competition from AI-native businesses like Midjourney or Dali. As we write, Firefly is unique in indemnifying users from copyright claims, a key consideration for core professional users. Firefly also has a significant distribution advantage given it is directly integrated into Adobe's apps, allowing users to use the tool with minimal friction and adjustment to their workflows. Adobe is one of the few software as a service vendors or SaaS vendors who have successfully monetized their Gen AI product. In October, Adobe rolled out Firefly to all Creative Cloud users, raised prices across the board by up to 10% and is charging users for additional consumption via credit packs. Assuming roughly 50% of users buy one credit pack per year yields a potential total revenue uplift of around $1.8 billion over the next three years equivalent to 3% acceleration to revenue growth. Like most software products, the incremental margins on Firefly should be relatively high. In terms of outlook, the current market conditions feel a lot like 2021, in that one needs to move down the quality and risk spectrum to find half-decent returns. However, instead of chasing those short-term returns, the team has been patient. On the long side, we are spending time identifying a list of quality businesses we would like to own at the right price, we recently returned from a research trip to the US with a list of prospects worthy of further investigation. We also run a short portfolio and we've been more active here given current market valuations. In areas of strong enthusiasm such as AI and clean tech, we are finding research and development projects masquerading as real businesses or stock promotion schemes trading at unbelievable valuations. Moving over to the Platinum Global Transition Fund where the return for the quarter was contributed significantly to by our uranium holdings. NAC Kazatomprom was up 86%, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust was up 38%, and Cameco was up 30%. The portfolio managers now take us through commentary on uranium pricing. Now, the recent advance in uranium pricing is best characterised as the intersection between a persistent and widening supply deficit 
and shifting fuel buyer psychology that is increasingly focusing on the security of supply. We appear to have finally reached an inflection point in the uranium market, which could push prices above market expectations. So where do we come from? The near 15 years since the last uranium cycle peak has been slow and painful for uranium producers. The commodity has seen sustained low prices and util utilities have shown a lack of willingness to contract for meaningful volumes over meaningful timeframes. In the early 2010s, demand fell due to the progressive post-Fukushima retirement of Japan's entire nuclear fleet, as well as reactor decommissioning and anti-nuclear sentiment in much of Europe. Primary demand fell by nearly 20% in the two years to 2012. Indeed, in 2022, primary demand was still below the 2010 level. Meanwhile, new supply increased markedly, most notably through the ramp-up of low-cost production from Kazakhstan. This led to a prolonged surplus in supply driven by high production, demand destruction and inventory redistribution. For utility buyers, this was a period in which supply was both plentiful and cheap, with prices falling briefly below US $20 a pound, versus where they peaked at roughly $130 a pound in 2007. In addition, low interest rates and spot market availability created incentives for traders to push material into the medium-term market which further reduced the imperative for utilities to sign up to long-term contracts with producers. Ultimately, producers were for forced to put mines into care and maintenance, with the most dramatic cuts to production being felt in 2017 and 2018, as Cameco and Kazatomprom both idled portions of production. These low prices also served to disincentivise investment in advancing both greenfield and even brownfield capacity. So where are we now? Curtailments in mine production and increasing demand driven by reactor life extensions and Japanese reactor restarts have seen a uranium market deficit emerging over the last several years. Notably, this is the first sustained and persistent period of deficit in the history of the market, with past deficits comfortably met by large commercial inventories and secondary supply sources. The secondary supply sources that were available during the last primary deficit period have been largely exhausted. Inventory draws and the introduction of physical uranium vehicles, namely the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, are one major factor. The bifurcation of the uranium market in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine is another. Both have contributed to a lack of available secondary supply to support the primary uranium market deficit. The Sprott is a listed vehicle that has been buying and storing physical pounds of uranium. The introduction of Sprott has resulted in somewhere around 62 million pounds of U308 being sequestered in this trust. This has cleared much of the mobile inventory and reduced spot market availability, which has in turn reduced the ability of utilities to meet short-term unfulfilled requirements and put pressure on the price for near-term deliveries. Now, in terms of Russia and Ukraine, Russia has historically had significant market share in uranium enrichment, and its invasion of Ukraine has pushed many European utilities to seek alternative suppliers. This has reduced the enrichment overcapacity we have historically experienced. This excess capacity previously allowed us to extract more enriched product from the same quantity of physical uranium. The trend is now reversing and could result in more than 20 million pounds of additional uranium demand, assuming all Western requirements move away from Russia. We're also seeing increasing demand from nuclear build-outs in China and a re-acceptance of nuclear in the West. The change in sentiment is seeing the reversal of closure plans 
extensions of reactor life and early stage small modular reactor development. Balancing the supply deficit requires increased production from both major producers and smaller developers with both brownfield projects and importantly, new greenfield mine supply required. Until recently, prices have remained insufficient to, uh, to even incentivize the restart of brownfield projects, let alone the scale of new mine development and exploration required to meet this expanding uranium deficit. Separately, the long lead time to the development, to new development rather, also means that it is unlikely that meaningful greenfield supply will become available before the late 2020s at the absolute earliest. More likely, it will occur in the early 2030s. And what does this mean for fuel buyers? We're at the stage of the cycle where the historical expectation of readily available cheap material is slowly and begrudgingly replaced with scarcity, buyer fear, and higher pricing. Utilities are highly price insensitive buyers. This means that pricing is dictated much more by buyer psychology than fundamentals. During the last cycle, we saw the uranium price increasing by near seven times due to supply fears around Cameco's mine issues, even in a market that was in surplus. The possibility of very high prices should not be discounted in the context of a highly opaque market driven by the psychology of highly priced insensitive buyers. For the outlook, the carbon transition is a multi-decade investment opportunity, although the pace of the transition and the investment opportunity will not be linear across all subsectors. Nearer term, we see higher interest rates, input cost inflation, and technical issues driving continued challenging business conditions for a number of these subsectors. This is currently observable in offshore wind, for example, where the fund has no direct exposure. Other areas such as nuclear are experiencing improved outlooks and sentiment shifts. This pairs with cyclical recoveries beginning to occur in other areas, such as pulp and paper producers, who are much less exposed to macro drivers of weakness. We remain positive about the investment opportunities available in certain segments of the transition landscape and continue to find attractive opportunities. And that brings us to the end of the audio highlights from the Platinum Trust quarterly report for September 2023 and the report for the Platinum Global Transition Fund. We'll leave it there as we've covered a range of topics and I've mentioned a number of the individual stocks in focus that the funds are invested in. Please do get in touch if you'd like more information or to provide feedback. The email address is invest at platinum.com.au. We'd love to talk to you further about investing. Thank you for listening. All the best.